just want to thank David for rousing such a sense of anticipation for uh, this passage this morning. But as we go to Romans 16, which is where I'd like you to turn, you'll quickly see what David's talking about. This is just a list of names, one of those passages where if you're reading through the Bible, you're kind of glad to get to because you can kind of skim through this and move on to meatier stuff. But I think if we take a look at this, we'll see some really intriguing things and I think learn some instructive lessons. If nothing else, you can look at this as a list of Greek baby names. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but most people, when they pick a name out of the Bible, they pick something like really ordinary, like John or Mark or David or Jonathan. But you could be the first on your block to have a Phlegon or a Hermes, and, uh, and you will have me to thank for it. So, uh, read a survey not too long ago that was done with people who were over the age of 95, and they were asked, uh, if you were to live your life over again, what would you do differently? And there were three common responses. One is that they would reflect more. A second thing they would do if they could live life over again would be to take more risks. And a third thing they would do would be to, to do more things that would live on after, after they were gone. And that's what these people in this chapter did. There were things they did that caused their names to be preserved here long after their death. And we can learn from this. You can learn inter- interesting things just uh, from names. <clears throat> I was reminded when studying through this passage of uh, some of the trio Indians with whom Claude worked in uh, Claude Levitt in the jungles of South America. One of the first men he worked with in translating the scriptures into the trio tongue was the chief of the tribe, a man by the name of Peshaifa. And I'm going to give you the names of his first three children, and I want to see if you can tell me when his interest in the scriptures really began to grow. Peshaifa's first child was named Elkah, second child was named Kanayana, and his third child was named Melchizedek. <laughs> Little tiny trio Indian boy running around Melchizedek. So you can learn things from names. But a passage like this will kind of put to the test our uh, belief in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 where Paul says every scripture is inspired by God and profitable. We'll try to put that to the test this morning. If you glance through this, these first 16 verses of Romans 16 and see one name after another... I think there are several things uh, that we can learn kind of right from the outset just by scanning this list of names. Uh, One thing we can learn from this is that people are important. People were important to the apostle. These were people he had met on his travels uh, all over the Roman Empire. He himself had not been to Rome, but, but these people had migrated from the places that Paul had met them to the city of Rome. And Paul loved people. I had a piece of literature came across my desk this last week, uh, one of these uh, thundering uh, right-wing fundamentalist tracts, which was uh, arguing quite insistently that the mark of the authentic Christian is his allegiance to the truth. Now, it is true that we must have an allegiance to the truth, but the New Testament teaches us that the real mark of an authentic Christian is love, that to the real Christian, people are important, and we see that here. Another thing that we learned from this is if you glance through this list of names, uh, uh, you'll discover upon closer examination that most of these people were ordinary slaves or freedmen. Uh, Freedmen were slaves who had been emancipated by their masters. Oftentimes they would be set up in some kind of small business and the master would capitalize them and then share in in the profits. 
But most of these people were just ordinary slaves or freedmen. Uh, in fact, that can be a break if you're trying to read this because an influential Roman citizen would have at least three names. Imagine trying to read through this list if it was three times as long. So we have that to be thankful for. But at any rate, these are ordinary people. It's a reminder to us again that this is God's plan with the body of Christ, is to draw into the body just people who were ordinary, garden-variety-type, vanilla people and make them into the family of God. Another thing we can learn from this uh, casual once-over is to uh, recognize, drawn from the fact that many of the people in this list are women. There are 33 people referred to by name in chapter 16, and 10 of these people are women. There's a columnist in the Statesman who is uh, fond of referring to Paul as a neurotic misogynist, which I'm not even sure what that means, but it's not good. Uh, but his, his uh, thesis is that Paul had a very low view of women. And yet it's clear if you just glance through this that every time he refers to a woman, he does so with affection and with admiration and with respect for their contribution to the work of the gospel. refers to Priscilla, for example, as a fellow worker, a colleague in spreading the gospel. So he had a, a respect and an admiration for women and saw them as equals in the work of the ministry and as gifted and influential. Well, let's take a look at some of these uh, specific individuals. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with Phoebe, whose name means bright or radiant and who lived up to that name. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. <clears throat> She's described as a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. Paul was writing this epistle to the Romans from the city of Corinth, and Sincrea was a small harbor town about seven miles to the east of Corinth on the Saronic Gulf there. The cape around the southern part of Greece was very treacherous, and so it was quite common for merchants to bring their goods to the port of Sincrea, and they'd unload the goods and ship them overland to the port on the other side of the isthmus. Try saying that three or four times, by the way, isthmus. And then they would load them on ships and take them on their westward uh, journey. Sometimes if the ship was small enough, they'd actually cart the whole ship across this little peninsula on land. And so Sincrea then was a port town. Uh, in fact, about this time, uh, Nero tried to build a canal from Sincrea across to the other side of the peninsula so ships could pass straight through. Gave it up as a lost cause, but that canal was finally completed uh, in 1893. Also, by the way, uh, remember that uh, terrorist incident on that day cruise ship Well, that, uh, just a few weeks ago? Well, that ship was plying the Saronic Gulf, where Sincrea was located in the harbor. And she was a member of the church there at this little town of Sincrea and evidently had some business in Rome. And evidently, uh, this was the excuse for Paul to write a letter to this church. He discovered that Phoebe had some uh, reason to go to Rome, probably a business matter or a legal matter, by the language in verse 2, and took occasion to send a letter by her hand to the church at Rome. So she probably was the one who carried this letter to the Roman church. Now, she was a total stranger to the church at Rome, and that's why Paul has to introduce her to the church and commend her to them, which was an ordinary 
procedure at this time. But we can uh, see from the way in which the Romans were to greet her, the way in which we are to respond to strangers in our body. Somebody comes to our body as a total stranger. We're to do two things, the same two things that the church was to do to to Phoebe. First of all, to receive her, in verse 2, to welcome and greet with open arms and friendship. And then secondly, to help them. That's what the Roman church was asked to do. That's how we're to relate to strangers. Welcome them and help them in whatever way they may have need. Shows Paul's confidence, by the way, in the Roman church that he could essentially ask them to do whatever Phoebe asked and have the confidence that they would respond to that need. And also shows his confidence in Phoebe that she wouldn't abuse this, this privilege. Now, she's described as a servant of the church in verse 1. If you have a New American Standard translation with marginal notes, you'll see that an alternate way to translate this word is with the word deacon. It's the Greek word diakonos. Sometimes in the New Testament it's translated with the word servant, and other times it's translated with the word deacon, or deaconess if it happened to be a female. And I would suggest that that's the proper way to translate the word at this point. She was a deaconess in the church at Sincrea, or a female uh, deacon. Now, what did uh, deacons do? What made a person a deacon in the church? Well, a deacon was just somebody who helped people. End of verse 2. She herself has been a helper of many. The word helper that's translated there is uh, used other places to refer to a patroness. So evidently, uh, Phoebe was a woman of some wealth, and she was very generous with what God had entrusted to her and had met the needs of many people, Paul says, including my own. Perhaps she'd assisted him in some of the expenses associated with his missionary travels. But she was just a helper of people. She was just a servant of people. Now, in the early church, as near as I can tell, there were a group of people in the, in the body of Christ who were designated uh, as deacons. Just as there were a group of men who were designated as elders... There were a second group of men and women in the early church who were designated as deacons or servants par excellence. Those who had serving gifts and had the ability to simply quietly help people with the ordinary everyday needs of life materially or physically or financially or emotionally. These people were called deacons. Now if you flip to um, uh, 1 Timothy 3, you'll see some of the list of qualifications for elders and uh, deacons. And I just want to point out a couple of things there, if you turn there. Since Phoebe was a woman who was called a deacon or deaconess because she met these qualifications and make a couple of comments on that. Uh, the difference between elders and deacons as a sidelight seemed to be primarily in the area of uh, function and giftedness that um, elders were men. Paul indicates that in the church and in the home, leadership is entrusted to men. They're the ones whom God holds accountable for the spiritual life of the church and the spiritual life of their families. Never applied, by the way, to society at large, just to the church and at home. And they were responsible to oversee the life of the church. In fact, one of the terms for elder in the New Testament means overseer. It was their function to look out over the body and see the needs that existed and mobilize the resources available to them 
to meet those needs. And they were also called to shepherd the flock, to teach the scriptures to the body. Those were the responsibility of elders. And according to 1 Timothy 3, they had to meet certain character qualifications. In other words, only those men who had the appropriate maturity were to be set aside as elders. So those who had leadership gifts and teaching gifts were eligible to become elders if their character uh, recommended them for that position. And then their task in the body was to provide oversight and teaching. Now, if you look down at verses 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy 3, you'll see the requirements for deacons. And the only difference that I can detect between the requirements for deacon and elder is that deacons were not required to be able to teach, nor were they given oversight responsibility in the church. So evidently there was a difference in giftedness, that if you were given by the Spirit serving gifts in the early church, then you could aspire to be considered by the church as a deacon. If you had teaching and overseeing gifts, then you could aspire to being considered by the church an elder. But if you look at the character qualifications that are found here, almost every requirement of a deacon is also found on the list for elders. So evidently in the New Testament church, in order to be a deacon, you had to be just as mature as those who were considered elders. The only difference was in your area of service or giftedness. But deacons weren't uh, junior elders or kind of elders in training. They were fully mature men and women who were uh, held out to the body as an example of what a gifted, mature servant looked like. You notice in verse 8 that deacons are referred to, and then in verse 11 that women are referred to. There's been some debate over what the reference is to these women in verse 11, whether these are female deacons or deaconesses, or whether they are the wives of the deacons that are mentioned in verse 8. It seems to me it must refer to the qualifications for female deacons because uh, there's no requirement for elders' wives, and it seems strange that there would be some kind of requirement for deacons' wives if there were not for elders' wives. So these are the requirements, the qualifications for female deacons. And Phoebe evidently had met these qualifications and was held out to the body at Sincrea as a deacon or deaconess. I think this was a helpful thing that the early church uh, did. Uh, one of the, and it was a way, I believe, that the early church uh, honored the serving gifts and held them up on an equal plane with the speaking or teaching gifts. One of the things we have to wrestle with here at Cole is because we're so committed to the Scriptures and the teaching of the Scripture is that there's a tendency to exalt the teaching gift out of its right uh, proportion to the rest of the gifts, particularly the serving gifts. And by designating some people who were mature, gifted servants as deacons, they were held out to the body as examples. If you have serving gifts, they would say, here's someone to pattern yourself after. Here's someone to be like. We honor the serving gifts just as we do the speaking gifts. Attended Salt several uh, weeks ago, and I was really uh, delighted to see that at one point in the evening, Salt is a singles group, meets here at Cole, one point in the evening, they took some time out of their regular activities to honor people in the salt ministry who had just been servants in that ministry, helping to meet practical needs in quiet and unseen ways, uh, honoring the serving gifts alongside the teaching gift. Now, it's really clear that for the body to function effectively, it requires both teachers, but it also requires servants, that 
Servants, those who have serving gifts and just help people, are the feet and hands of the body of Christ. If you see someone who's been disabled some way in an accident or congenitally, you find someone whose mind may function perfectly well and whose mouth functions perfectly well, and yet their body's not in a condition to receive and respond to the directions it gets from the head. And that's a disabled body. Well, the body of Christ is the same way, that if there aren't servants to implement the teaching of Scripture, then the body is disabled. It's not functioning as it should in society. So servants have a critically important place to to play in the body. When Stuart Briscoe was here a couple of years ago doing a pastor's conference, he told a story about two nurses in, in his church there in Milwaukee who were on duty one night, and a couple of Southeast Asian refugees came into the reception area of the hospital looking very confused and distraught. And after a uh, short stay, they left. And uh, these two nurses were concerned for them and managed to find out where they lived and followed them home, uh, discovered that they didn't know the language, didn't know, knew no English, uh, didn't have any money, and so didn't know how to get medical attention. They found them, in fact, trying to build a fire with wood from a neighbor's fence in their living room in a little saucepan. So the neighbor, I'm sure, was glad that they got some help also. But they were just moved with compassion for these refugees and uh, enlisted the aid of the body to get furniture for them and and help them get set up and and get other people involved in reaching out to these people. And the word began to spread through the network. And and now there are people from from, uh, all over the country who are coming to Milwaukee because refugees because they know that here's a place that somebody will help them. And, and take care of them. So just servants quietly going about the business of helping people, but absolutely essential if the body is to be what Christ intends it to be. Now, in verses 3 through 5, we are reintroduced to Aquila and Priscilla. Greet Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Priscilla's name, by the way, Priscilla means little old lady. It's a totally useless piece of information, but I discovered it in my research. I offer it to you free of charge. But Priscilla and Aquila were one of the really outstanding couples in the the New Testament, and they pop up occasionally in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles every, every time in a, in a significant capacity. If you remember, Paul first met them in the city of Corinth, the city from which he's writing this letter. Uh, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome in 49 AD by the emperor Claudius. And since Aquila and Priscilla were Jews, they were thrown out along with everybody else. According to one of the Roman historians, the reason that Claudius threw the Jews out of Rome that year was because of a disturbance that was created by a person by the name of Crestus. And probably that's a misspelling of the name of Christ. So in the Jewish community in the city of Rome by 49 AD, there was some serious dissension in the community over who the person of Christ was. And Claudius's uh, response was to throw the whole lot out. So Priscilla and Aquila migrated to Corinth, and there Paul met them on their second missionary journey. They were tent makers, as Paul was, and so... Paul probably ran into them in the marketplace as they opened up shop and they began a ministry of co-working in the gospel. 
Paul later went to Ephesus from Corinth, and Priscilla and Aquila went with him across the Adriatic Sea there to, uh, to Ephesus. After Paul left Ephesus to go down to Jerusalem, Aquila and Priscilla stayed there, and a man by the name of Apollos came to Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him preach one Sunday morning and uh, immediately were drawn to him and invited this preacher home uh, for lunch, which is a noble idea. May their tribe increase. And uh, they realized in listening to him that morning that Apollos simply did not understand all of the details of the gospel. So they took him aside, we're told, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And this Apollos, who was a mighty, influential, persuasive speaker, then began to teach the complete gospel from the scriptures and had a great influence on the early church, in part due to the influence of Aquila and Priscilla. They are uh, cited six times in the New Testament, and in four of those six occasions, Aquila's name, or Priscilla's name, is cited first, which is unusual in that culture, and that would indicate that she was probably the more prominent or influential or gifted of the two. And then by the time Paul writes this letter, some five years later, they had migrated back to Rome. This letter was written in about 57 A.D., and Claudius had died in 54 A.D., three years before, so everybody had forgotten about his edict, and the Jews could come back to Rome. And then later, when Paul writes the epistle to Second Timothy, epistle of Second Timothy, we find Aquila and Priscilla back in Ephesus. Now, uh, we don't know how they risked their lives or their necks for Paul's sake. Uh, we're not given any more information about that, but they evidently uh, demonstrated the kind of love for Paul that Jesus says was the greatest love of all, the willingness to lay down your life for their friends, and they were willing to do so for Paul. And then, of course, as the overseer of our growth group ministry, I'm really delighted to notice that they uh, had a church in their house. Verse 5, in fact, everywhere they went, it seems that they used their home as a meeting place for a house church. If you understand a little bit of church history, you realize that for the first 300 years of the life of the church, there were no such things as church buildings. Christianity was an outlaw religion in the Roman Empire. In fact, Christians were technically considered atheists because they did not believe in the Roman gods. And occasionally they were put to death for being on the charge of atheism, for not believing in the, in the Roman gods. And so the only place they could meet without fear of reprisal were in homes. Now, occasionally they would rent some kind of public meeting place, as Paul did in Ephesus, so they could all come together and meet. But predominantly, the meetings of the early church in the first three centuries took place in private homes. And Aquila and Priscilla did this themselves. And, of course, that warms my heart. Uh, our growth groups, essentially, are probably the closest parallel in our fellowship to what the early church was like. And the leaders of our growth groups are functioning like the pastors of these these early churches. Now in verses 5 through 15, we run into a number of other individuals. And I will try to group my comments under the ascriptions that Paul gives to these various people. There are several different terms he uses to describe these people, and we'll kind of group our comments under these headings. First of all, we're introduced in verse 5b to Eponetus. Greet Eponetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Now, he's uh, referred to as the beloved. Now, I think this is a term that Paul uses in this chapter refer, to refer to people 
that he himself had had the privilege of leading to the Lord. The term beloved was a term that was used to describe the father's relationship to the son, the heavenly father to Jesus, and was often used to describe the relationship between parent and children. So it was a natural term for Paul to use to describe his spiritual children. Here's Eponidas in verse 5. If you slip down to verse uh, 8, you will see an ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. In verse 9, Stachus, my beloved. And in verse 12, Persis, a woman, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. These four individuals, I think, had met the Lord directly through, through Paul's personal ministry. And Eponidas was special to Paul because he was the first convert to Christ from Asia. That's Western, what is today Western Turkey, of, of which Ephesus was the capital. I'm a trivia buff, so I'm really into uh, firsts. For instance, I can tell you who, what the first entry in the baseball encyclopedia is. It's Henry Aaron, two A's. I can also tell you who the first individual was to hit a home run in his first major league at bat and his first all-star at bat, Terry Steinbach. And I can tell you who the first high school athlete was to get a standing ovation for getting into a game, Brian Fisher. So I'm into... Uh, <laughs> I'm into firsts, but here is a uh, here is a first that really counts. Here was the first uh, individual who had the courage to break away from the herd and follow Christ in the province of Asia. Something really special about the first one to come to the Lord among a group of people. I was talking to Claude Levitt this week about the first uh, convert among the YY Indians with whom Paul with whom Claude originally worked, and he was the witch doctor in this tribe. And for, for five years or six years, Claude and his other missionaries sought to, to plant the gospel among the YYs. And Elka, the witch doctor, finally became a believer after six years. And the rest of the tribe uh, watched what happened. They were afraid that because he'd given up his charms and was now eating wild hogs instead of shepherding them, as the witch doctor was supposed to do, that the evil spirits would, would kill him. And so Elkah told them, well, you watch and see what happens. The spirits get me, then don't follow the way of Christ. But if they don't, then trust Christ to be the one to protect you from the evil spirits as he protects me. And so they watched him for about a year, and then uh, slowly, one by one, other members of the tribe began to follow his example into the fold. But Elkah would always have a very special place in, in Claude's heart because he was the first convert to Christ in that tribe. And so does Eponidas. Now, this Ampliatus in verse 8 is an interesting figure. There is a gravestone in the, uh, one of the earliest Christian cemeteries in the city of Rome, uh, an elaborately decorated gravestone with Ampliatus' name on it. Only that one name, probably the same individual. And since there's only one name on the gravestone, it's highly likely that this individual was a slave. And yet, because of the decorative nature of the gravestone, it's also probable that he was influential in the church. This was the church's way of honoring him on his death. And that's again another indication of how the social distinctions in the early church had been completely obliterated. A man could be a slave in secular society and yet a prince in the church. Now a second term that Paul uses to describe people in this passage is those who worked hard. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. The idea behind the verb to work hard is to, it's the point of sweat, uh, wearying kind of work. And she had been faithful in her service to the Lord. In verse 12, 
we're introduced to two women, probably twin sisters, Greek Tryphena and Tryphosa. So if you're in the market for twins, consider these names. <laughs> Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Paul probably wrote these words with a bit of a, a smile toying at the corner of his lips because the words Tryphena and Tryphosa mean dainty and delicate. They were dainty and delicate, working hard in the Lord. And then the end of verse 12, Persis the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. Another citation, a third in this chapter, are those who are fellow workers. Where We remember Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Then a man by the name of Urbanus in verse 9, his name means sophisticated and may be true of him, our fellow worker in Christ. There's a fourth category, people who are described as kinsmen. For instance, Andronicus and Junius in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. These were two men who were kinsmen of Paul's. Paul might mean by that that they were blood relatives, but he more likely means that they were fellow Jews. And at some point, he indicates that they were fellow prisoners. Nothing like sharing a jail cell to draw close to someone. And it had worked with him in relationship with these two men. And we're told by Paul that they were outstanding among the apostles. Now, it could mean that they themselves were apostles, that there were a second tier, evidently, of people who were called apostles in the early church, those who had been witnesses of the resurrection. Remember, there were 500 of those who had, a, who had witnessed the resurrection of Christ, and evidently the church would commission them to go out and tell people what they'd seen, and they were kind of a second tier of apostles, or missionaries would be the term that we would use today. Perhaps Andronicus and Junius were in that group, or Paul simply could mean that they had an outstanding reputation among the apostles. Paul also mentions that they were in Christ before him that they had met the Lord before Paul himself had. And this takes us right back to the very early days of the church. Paul had converted to Christ uh, just a couple of years after the death of Christ, and here were men who were in Christ even before he was, perhaps even had prayed for Paul and had rejoiced when this persecutor of the church and of them had come into the fold. And then there's another kinsman, Herodian, in verse 11 who probably by name was related, as his name indicates, related to the Herods, who were the ruling party, the ruling family in Palestine. There's a fifth label that Paul uses in greeting Apelles in verse 10. Apelles, the approved in Christ. This is probably my favorite guy in this whole chapter. Here's a guy who was approved in Christ, had, had found his sense of approval and affirmation and self-worth, not in what other people thought of him, but in Christ, because Christ accepted him and considered him approved. Then we're introduced to two households in this passage. In verse 11, the household of Aristobulus, which might refer to a house church. And in verse 11, those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord, a second house church. Now, a household at this time would probably consist of the slaves and freedmen who were owned by the individual that's named. So there were slaves and freedmen of Aristobulus, to whom Paul sends greetings, 
and slaves and freedmen of Narcissus. And both of these characters, Aristobulus and Narcissus, are of some interest. Aristobulus was probably the grandson of Herod the Great, the king who tried to put to death the infant Christ. His other brothers, Aristobulus's other brothers, went back to Palestine from Rome and served as kings, but Aristobulus stayed right there in Rome. And his slaves, upon his death, probably passed into the possession of the emperor. Aristobulus, we know, was a close friend of Claudius. He probably predeceased Claudius, and his slaves would have become the property of Claudius. So here were a group of believers meeting right under the nose of the emperor. And then this Narcissus, the next individual mentioned, was a freedman who was an executive assistant to Claudius, the emperor. It was his right-hand man, probably the same guy. And he was the one who controlled access to the emperor. Nobody could get to Claudius except through Narcissus. And so he made a career out of having people grease his palms in order to get a letter to Claudius or an audience with Claudius. When he died, left behind an estate probably of, of $20 million. And there were... Uh, Believers in his household, again, meeting right under the nose of the emperor. Now, uh, Narcissus had the misfortune when Claudius was put to death by Nero, poisoned by Nero. Uh, Narcissus had the misfortune to have favored Britannicus, who was Nero's rival for the throne. Well, Nero bumped off Britannicus, poisoned him at dinner one night, and that didn't make Narcissus too popular, and his lifespan got shortened in a big hurry. And he was forced to commit suicide by Nero. But because of Narcissus's position, his slaves probably also passed into the possession of Nero. So here were two households of slaves uh, meeting right under the nose of the emperor Nero in a house church setting. There's another description of, of Rufus in verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord using choice in the same sense that we use a choice cut of prime rib, an excellent man in the Lord. And notice this, also his mother and mine. Now this Rufus is an interesting uh, character. In Mark 15.21, we won't take time to look at that, but in Mark 15.21, in the Gospel of Mark, was probably written for the church at Rome, there is the mention of Simon of Cyrene who carried the, tr the cross of Christ through the Via Dolorosa. And we're told in Mark that this Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, probably the same Rufus that we're introduced to here. And the Simon of Cyrene had probably come to Jerusalem just for the Passover and was co-opted by the soldiers into carrying the cross of Christ when he sagged beneath the load, and probably against his will carried the cross piece to the site of the crucifixion. But perhaps, and probably as a matter of fact, his heart was captured by the courage and the gentleness and the love that he saw in the person of Christ as he went to his crucifixion. And he was captured that day by Jesus as his Lord and went home and passed on his faith to his wife and to his sons. And here Rufus shows up in Rome as a believer. And at some point along the line, Rufus's mother became a surrogate mother to Paul. You don't normally think of Paul having a mother, but he did. Here was a spiritual mother, probably called him Polly, and probably made chocolate chip cookies for him and, and everything. So he had a mother in the Lord. 
And then we're introduced to two groups in verses 14 and 15 quickly in, in closing. Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. All of the names in verse 14 are men, names of men. So this might have been some kind of early businessmen's fellowship, some kind of early morning men's Bible study or support group. And then in verse 15, we're introduced to Philologus, uh, which might be a nickname. It means lover of the word. And Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Probably a reference to another house church. Now, a couple of points I want to make in closing here. We're out of time. I just want to make a couple of points real quickly. One is the number of times in this passage where Paul refers to people being in the Lord or in Christ. Ten times that occurs. Just another reminder to us that for Paul and for us, life is really centered in Jesus Christ. We are in him, and he is in us. And he is our resource and our source of strength and power and peace and love, the one to whom we look for everything. And secondly, I want to point out the number of references to family here. Paul, as we've seen, had spiritual children in the family of God. He refers to brothers in this passage, refers to sisters, and even to a mother that he had acquired in the Lord. And it's a reminder to us that whatever else the body of Christ is, it is a family. It's a place where we can find brothers and sisters and spiritual parents and spiritual children. One of my favorite... um, Stories I read to my kids is called Springfellow's Parade. Springfellow was a young colt who wanted to participate in the annual Easter parade but was rejected because he was too wobbly. The one who organized the parade said, Only the noblest and the brightest and the best can march in my Easter parade. Springfellow, you're too wobbly. So he was sad about that. Abigail wanted to march in the parade. She was a young chick. She was too fuzzy. She couldn't march in the parade. And then Raymond, the little rabbit, wanted to march in the parade, and he was told he was too silly. And uh, so they got together and decided that they would have a wobbly, fuzzy, silly parade all of their own. And so other creatures from the meadow uh, heard the music and began to join this parade. And the music carried across the hilltops. And uh, the planner of the Easter parade, the noble bunny and the noble horse and the beautiful hen, heard the music and came to join this uh, fuzzy, wobbly, silly parade. You know, that's a beautiful picture of what the body of Christ is designed to be. A lot of us in this room, most of us are fuzzy or wobbly or silly, but we're in the parade. And what God wants to do is make us into the kind of family that sends music out through our community and draws others into the fold. Well, let's stand and let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a heavenly Father to us and that you've given us so many spiritual brothers and sisters. Realize, Lord, there are many of us here for whom our spiritual family means more to us uh, than even our biological family. And we thank you for that, for the love and the support that we receive. We confess, Lord, that we're not a perfect family, that we squabble and fight and have personality conflicts and don't always get along. But we do, uh, just like normal families, but we want to be the family that you want us to be. Help us to become better brothers and sisters for each other and be a place where those who need a family can find one. Amen.